Well, we've been in a series looking through the Psalms, and my hope in this time was that we would be encouraged by the fact that the, the Scriptures don't just give us direction and command. They don't just give us history and narrative, but they really seek to engage. God seeks to engage our hearts where we are. And sometimes it's a great experience to engage with God where you are. It's, it's, it's worship, and it's excitement, and it's happy. But sometimes it's not worshiping and excitement and it's happy. And it's, it's how long, O oh Lord, as we talked about a number of weeks ago. It's, it's I'm struggling in this area or, or I'm surrounded by opposition. And God, what do I do in this honest situation? I want my hope as we continue is that you, if you haven't already, you get a glimpse that this scripture, these scriptures, these words from God, uh, they're, they're not, this is not uh, just a Sunday morning book that you, you open up on Sunday morning and, and it doesn't have any relevance from Monday or Tuesday or Thursday. It doesn't have any relevance when, when you experience heartbreak. It doesn't have any relevance when someone in your life betrays you. It doesn't have any relevance when, when someone dies in your life. It doesn't have any relevance because it is, is, it's immensely relevant to your life. Not just in how you are to live and what you are to do, but how you are to relate to your circumstances. And so this week is no different we're going to look at uh, a really powerful psalm that asks, I think, a pretty significant question in, in each of our lives. What do we do when we face brokenness, wickedness, evil around us? What do we do when we face brokenness, wickedness, and evil around us? And, and it's, a, it's a relevant question because we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world in which uh, you can... You can go to the news, you can go outside, you can go to your school, and you experience the results of sin. And sometimes it leaves us asking the question, why, God, are you even allowing this sort of thing to happen? And so I want God to speak to that question. And my hope is that he'll speak and encourage us, give us strength and courage to trust him in the face of wickedness. Amen? So let's stand together. It's a long psalm, so I'm going to read it. I will spare you, but um, read along with me in your heart. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, and my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are. They, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They, they scoff and speak with malice loftily. They, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his, his people turn back from them and, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean. I've, I've washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I, if I, had said I, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me wearisome, a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. 
Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I I was like a, a beast toward you. But nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire but you, besides you. My flesh and and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You, You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all of your works. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we look on into the world and we see the prosperity of those who don't follow you. And then we look at our own lives and we feel the friction of following you. Your, your son Jesus Christ even said that we needed to count the cost because to follow you meant to pick up our, our, our cross and deny ourselves on a daily basis. It is not easy to follow you. And so in this tension, Lord, we're asking how, how do we make sense of this reality? How do we, with, with faith-filled hearts, trust you when we see brokenness and, and wickedness increase in the world? When we see that it seems like there's so much that is going wrong? God, would you minister your grace to your people? Would you minister your comfort to your people? Would you... God, minister by your spirit, your strength to your people. Strengthen our hearts. We pray all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This is a longer psalm. I realized that kind of halfway into my preparation. (laughs) It's like, maybe I should have done this in two weeks. Um, We're not necessarily going to touch every single verse as I might otherwise do, but there are a number of ways you can break this out, <clears throat> but it has, for, for those of you who are taking notes, a kind of chiastic structure. If you're not, don't worry about it, but it, it basically, it, you have one section that then goes into another section that then goes into another section, and that is kind of the hinge point, uh, and then it comes back out. So in poetry, you'd have like A, B, C, and then B, prime, A prime. And if none of that made sense, don't worry about it. The point is, uh, it's building to something in the middle, and in the middle, it's going to come back and reflect back on something. So you have three real sections that I want to point out. The first section talks about this psalmist's belief and, and his experience being in conflict. Belief and experience being in conflict. Have you ever had a belief and then your experience, and you're looking at the two, and you're saying, ah, there's, there's a There's something here. There's an apparent contradiction. And then he goes to the truth being revealed in verses 18 through 20, this little kind of nugget that that everything turns around. And then it opens back up into belief and hope being restored. 
hope being restored because the psalmist is going to reorient our views so that the things that we experience are now seen from a different perspective. And now what once seemed to be in conflict is now, now brought into to, uh, alignment. So let's first talk about belief and experience being in conflict. <clears throat> the psalmist opens up and he says, truly God is good to Israel. I mean, how many people can say that? God, you are good, right? We came to church, hallelujah, praise the Lord. He is worthy. He's going to win the battles. We're thankful for you, Jesus. You've got authority, God. We, we come as, as people who know that, and we believe, if you're a Christian, that God is good and he has shown us his goodness in his salvation. Amen. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, to those who are, uh, another way of thinking about it is undivided in their affections toward God. One of the ways that the Bible talks about holiness and about this idea of purity, it's not just like avoiding the bad stuff, but it's having affections that are, that are focused in one direction, being interested only in God, right? Marital fidelity is being only interested in your spouse. That's being pure in heart. He says, for those who are pure in heart, God is good. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, it's interesting that when you're worshiping God, you can kind of tap into this focus that allows you to say, God, you're good. You're thinking about the gospel, the fact that he died for your sins. He rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death. He, he did all of these things for you. He offers eternal life to you. He blesses you in the moment. He, he causes the rain to fall in your life and pro- provide for you. And you're, you're worshiping God, but then you see the guy over here and, hey, he's got a nice Apple watch. Not only that, I know that guy. He's a jerk. He's really mean. And, and once you move your focus off of God and onto the people around you, you can begin to tally things a little differently. I mean, anyone who's ever lived in a neighborhood knows this. Because you have the good neighbors, then you have the bad neighbors. And sometimes the bad neighbors have really nice houses. Is it just me? And, and, and I, I joke, but, but when we look around, we see that Sometimes the good guys don't win. Can we be honest? Sometimes the good guys don't win. We've seen that in the last five years. Wherever you sit on the spectrum of, of, of politics and, and sociology, <clears throat> we've seen that there's been uh, moments where it seems like this is what justice should look like, and this is what my life looks like, or this is what our world looks like, and the two, they'll, they'll never meet. And we're asking ourselves, God, what are you doing here? Why is it that if you're a good God, right, God is good to Israel, verse 1. If you're a good God, then why is all of this happening? So he says, I I nearly stumbled. I nearly slipped into some some dark view of the world. And and as if we didn't know what he meant. He goes, let me explain. Let me explain. Let's talk about the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's not an insult. That's saying they have enough to eat, right? There's, they've, got, they've got a little bit of extra because they can, they can feed themselves. They've, they're, they're not dry. They're not, they're not uh, un, unquenched. There's, they've, they've anointed their faces with oil. They're, they're sleek. They, they, they've got a sense that they've been, they've been provided for. They're not in trouble as others are. 
Have you ever been in that situation? You know that that guy or that gal, they did, they did X, Y, or Z at work, but they are not getting in trouble. They're not getting in trouble because you know who their dad is. Or they're not getting in trouble because they, they have connections. And you see wickedness growing like a weed. And it's, it's a beautiful yellow dandelion that you cannot destroy. And it is just, it's growing with a kind of vim and vigor that, that defies understanding. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They are prosperous. They're prosperous. Because of that, they're proud. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. There's a sense in which they walk and do what they want, say what they want, treat people how they want, because they can. This is, this is you know, this is your, your, your seven-year-old bully in, in the elementary, right? You're, you're at the recess, and the, the teachers are not paying attention, and, and they're bullying because they can. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're violent. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Not only that, their, their words express a kind of wickedness that has been set free. They're proud in their words. It says they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. I'll crush you. I'll destroy you. I'll ruin your reputa- reputation. Go ahead. You send that email. Do that and see what happens. Go ahead. Make a report. See what happens. They scoff. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Can you see that? I mean, that's a neat picture as a side note. Their tongue struts through the earth. And it just seems like that everything that comes out of their mouth is an expression of defiance to, to anyone who would stand in their way. And therefore, his people turn back, and they, they find no fault, and, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge? Where is God? Where is God? The psalmist is asking, we see this. What do we do? What, what are you doing, God? He goes on, and he says in verse 12, they, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. This is the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And you can begin to see, if you're real tired, have you ever been tired of, of walking in holiness, walking in righteousness? And you see this guy over here, this gal over there, this organization, and they're, they're sitting at ease, increasing in riches. And you begin to think to yourself, you know what? Maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe this, maybe this is just not, maybe I should just throw the towel in and, and join the party. These are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. And we see that he has this, this response to all of this, all in vain, I, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I have been stricken, right? He, he literally is looking at their life. They've not been stricken like the rest of mankind. And he says, all the day long, I've been stricken. People are attacking me, criticizing me. They're, they're, they're calling my, my life and my integrity into question. And I'm being rebuked every morning. I'm doing the good job. I'm working on the, the group project. And, and, and this guy over here is doing nothing and getting celebrated. And I'm getting all the rebuke. Have you ever had that kind of Monday? 
don't know if you guys are quiet because you don't relate or quiet because it relates too much. There's going to be a good part. Don't just, <laughs> you're like, yeah, this is terrible. Um, the end? No. Um, he's, he's saying, what do I make of this, God? You know, I had this idea that if I followed you, you would bless me. I had this idea that if I, if I sacrificed my, my finances on your behalf, God, that you would provide for me, and yet here I am eating rice and beans, and they're over there doing crazy who knows what, and they're eating that sweet water. I want to eat at sweet water. Just looking in. No, don't do that. But he catches himself, and he says, you know what, if I had, if I had said all this, like he's processing before the Lord, but he's, if I had said all this, really kind of committed to it, I would have betrayed the generation of your, your, your children. I would have become a traitor to my own people. Right? He starts in verse 1, truly God is good to whom? To the people of God, Israel. The people who, to whom God has said, you're my people and I'm your God. And if he had gone to God and said, you know what, God? My life is hard. It's not easy. Their life, the wicked, it's, it's, it's easy. It's not hard. If I had committed to that, I would have been committing treason in your kingdom. And this, was, this is the attitude, and it's true. This is the attitude of the, the Israelites, right? I, I joke about this, but the Israelites, uh, Exodus starts because God hears their prayers, right? It starts not because God's like, I'm going to fix your problems. And they're like, no, we're good. It's okay. No, they're crying out to God and saying, God, would you save us? Would you help us? And the word says that, that God hears the cries of his people. And so he sends Moses, and, and throughout the, the process, he, he, he brings the people out, and they, they are stiff-necked and rebellious, and, and to the God who has been good to them, they say, you know what, I wish I was back in Egypt. I mean, they're like, I wish I had, you know, I don't like this manna, which miraculously showed up on the ground, or these, these quail, I don't like this fried chicken that God just kind of shipped in pre-DoorDash. And, and they complain, and we had onions in, in Egypt. We had garlic. And I, you know, onions and garlic are great, but, but when you're arguing for onions and garlic, you need to question your perspective. And, and, and the psalmist is saying, you know what, I don't want to have that perspective. I don't want to have that perspective. If I had said thus, I would have betrayed the generation of the children of God, just like the Israelites did in Egypt. And so here we get to the, the pivot point, the truth revealed. We talked about belief and experience being in conflict, and then the truth is revealed. Here, the question is, is, is God a just God? That's, that's what sits underneath those first 17 verses. God, are you a just God? You know, if you're a righteous God then are you going to uphold righteousness in the world? Or are you going to allow bad people to do bad things and not allow good people to, to benefit from the good things that they do? Are you a just God? Have you ever struggled with that question? Some of you, I think you might be afraid to admit that that's a thought that you have. And I want to give you the permission to ask the question, understanding that God is willing to answer it. Now, I think that if you ask the question, you need to be willing to hear his answer. But don't be afraid of asking the question. 
It's the sort of thing like, oh man, am I going to come across something in my life or in the Bible that's going to unseat God from his godship? No. I I, I promise you, you're not. But if if you want to have these kind of like quasi, you know, God, I I just don't know if you're good. And and really it's like, God, I just don't want to follow you. That's a different thing entirely. So judge your, judge your motivations. If you're asking because you really want his, his character to be brought to bear, I believe there are answers for you. But if you're asking because you want to impugn his, judge, his character, that's, that's going to be problematic. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Thank you for the yeses. Um, so we get to the truth. The answer to the question, um, is God a just God? Verse 18, truly you set them, talking about the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept up, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse, you, you despise them as phantom. You, you get rid of the wicked like, like you try to shake off a bad dream. You ever wake up from a bad dream and you're like, oh, still feels like they're the Foot Clan attacking me and I'm a Ninja Turtle. And you just kind of have to shake it off. That's not you? <laughs> just me? Okay. No, he says that the, that the Lord will, will shake off the wicked in the same way that you shake off a bad dream. Now this, um, I don't think this is a popular thing to say <laughs> in the world. Because we want to be like, God loves everyone. And, and he, you know, he, he offers eternal life to everyone. He does. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. Amen? Whoever comes to him can have eternal life. But it's whoever trusts in him will have eternal life. Not whoever lives however they want to will have eternal life. Right? The, the, the lie of our, our time is that there is nothing wrong except to say that something is wrong. Right? There, there is no immorality except to say that something is immoral. And, and what God says is, no, I don't, I don't celebrate wickedness. In fact, I stand against it. He says this, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. This is, it's a scary thing for me to be up, up here on the stage saying not just that God doesn't agree with wickedness, not just that God uh, in some kind of abstract way, opposes wickedness. No, but, but God at some point will set those who are wicked up to fail and to fall. And if you're walking in some kind of unrepentant sin and wickedness, please don't kid yourself and think that God's just going to keep letting it go. There's a point at which God says, okay, it's time. Now, if you're freaking out, there's grace. Repent of your sins, turn away, and trust him. Today's the day of repentance. But there is a day, family, of reckoning. There is a day when God says, it's time for everyone to see what is true, which is that not only am I good, but I'm just. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. He thinks to himself and he realizes, realizes, man, I... I need, to, I need to remember the character and nature of God. Your family, error, when it comes to your faith, error and, and sin isn't just 
believing outlandish and crazy things. Like, oh, you know, my friend, he, he started believing that God was an airplane. Like, and you're like, I'm never going to fall for that. I know God is not an airplane. That sounds ridiculous. Because it is. But, but error will, will slip in when you overemphasize one truth at the cost of another. And so to say that God is loving does not diminish that God is just. See, the thing about God is, is that he is, theologians call him simple. He's not complex. This is complex. There are parts to this thing. I can take parts off of it, and that part does not encompass the whole. Do you understand? What's crazy about God is that God is love. He's not made of love. He's not partly love. He is love. But that's also true of his holiness and his just. He's not partially just, and, and sometimes he's just, and sometimes he's loving. No, he's always loving, and he's always just. And you can't have one without the other. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, 4, it says, he says, the rock, talking about God, his, perfect, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. I wanted to give you a scripture that, that spoke to that fact, that God is just. A God of faithfulness and, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is just. He is justice. Therefore, the psalmist knows that he will, God will deal with wickedness. And, and before we, we go pointing fingers, you know, I appreciate, I don't remember when I heard it, but I appreciate the person who said every time you point a finger, you got three pointing back at you. So if you're like, yeah, that person, you know, my spouse, like, are you listening? Honey, honey, man, woman, you got three coming back at you. You have to deal with the wickedness in your own heart. God will judge our wickedness. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, we got a little bit of time. You're like, no, we don't. We got to be done. We got time. Um, in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 27. It says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once and afterwards come to judgment, just afterwards comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So we're going to all face judgment. We've all been appointed in our lives to die and then face the white throne of judgment. I don't know if you ever grew up, grew up under preaching about that. And it's not, again, it's not really in vogue at these times, but, but there's a moment at which we're going to all see the face of Jesus Christ. And I hope that it's a moment that we're all celebrating and worshiping, but God will judge. And one of two things will be our testimony. Either we will bear the punishment for our sins or Jesus will have borne the punishment for our sins. And that's not just true of the people in this room. That's true of every single human that has ever existed and will ever exist. Either Jesus died for their sins in such a way that they have received it and they are, their, their punishment is no more because he, he bore it, or they will bear the punishment for their sins. But our sins will be punished. This is, this is, where, this is why the gospel is amazing. Right? The gospel is not some sort of like... Um, you know, our house is a big mess because of the sin, so let's get the broom and put it under the rug. God isn't satisfied with your sin being under the rug, right? He's a good cleaner. He's going to clean that stuff up. 
Now, the danger is that your sin and my sin, our junk, our mess that we want cleaned up, it's attached to us, right? There's no kind of like, if there's a problem in my arm, you may have to cut off the arm, right? If you can't isolate that problem, you can't isolate sin from our lives. It's not like it exists in something like there's a little compartment right to the left of your heart. It's this box. It's black and ugly and nobody likes it. It's kind of gothy. And, and you can, we, can do a, we can do a surgery and remove that, and then you'll be holy and fine. No, it's, it's, it's like if I had this bottle of water, and I t- took a, you know, a, a syringe of cyanide and just put a little bit of cyanide in there. Would it be safe to drink any of the water? No, because sin or the, the poison had, has affected every aspect of it. You may not be the worst that you could possibly be. I would venture to say that you're not. You're all pretty great people. But... We can't escape the fact that sin has affected every aspect of our life. And because of that, when we realize that our sin is going to be punished, we need a Savior. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about this fact that, that we will, our sin will be punished. I can get there. For our sake... He made him, talking about God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. See, that's, that's the other option. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says, but the gift of God is eternal life. And, and the, the gospel says that when Jesus was on the cross, God treated Jesus like a sinner so that he might be able to treat us like Jesus. God is a just God. Have you dealt with your wickedness today? It's an old word. We don't really use that word, but I think it's helpful. It's not a mistake. I'm not asking if you've dealt with your, your bad habits of biting your nails and, and um, you know, not brushing your teeth. Gentlemen, leaving your jeans on the ground, on the floor. I'm not talking about your bad grammar. I'm talking about the inclination in your heart and my heart to look at God and his commands and say, no, I'm good. I'm going to run this thing. I'm talking about your inclination to look at your marriage and say, you know what? I know that your Bible has things to say, but uh, I'm going to kind of figure this thing out myself. It's your inclination to to look at your kids and say, you know what? I'm going to do what I want with you and you're going to do what I tell you to do. It's your inclination to go to work and say, you know what? I'm going to get mine I'm going to do whatever it takes to get mine, and I'm not worried about who I have to get through in order to do that. That's what God wants to address. Have you dealt with your wickedness today? Because God is a just God, and he is not fooled. He's not fooled. So we have that pivot. We go from our our beliefs and our convictions being in... in, um, our beliefs and our experience being in conflict, we go then to that truth, and then, and then he has this hope restored, which we'll happily land on. The psalmist's bitterness, he says in verse uh, 21, he says, when I, he, he begins to reflect on his thoughts and behaviors and is a little freaked out by it, honestly. He says, when, I, when, my, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. You know, there was this moment in the Old Testament where King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he began to kind of lift himself up and, and not believe the things of God and have a perspective that was focused on him. 
And, and there was a point at which God said, you know what, you're going to have some time off. And he, he basically turned him into an animal. Now, I mean, he was probably still a man. I don't, we, this wasn't like a Narnia kind of twisting, turning thing. But he acted like an animal. He ate the grass of the field. He, he, he was in rebellion against God until at one point he finally came to his senses, it says, and acknowledged that Yahweh the Lord was God. And, and it was in that moment of resetting his vision on God that, that things changed for him. But before that, his perspective was brutish. It was like a beast. And family, when you are bitter in anger, when you are, when you are tied up in unforgiveness, when you are looking at your own life and, and you're focused on, on the, the, the wickedness and the evil of others to the exclusion of your own, we become bitter. We become like brutes. We become un, unresponsive to God. And he says, man, when I was bitter... When I was jealous, when I was envious, when I was not thinking about God, your goodness, and how that had, had been experienced by me, when I began to think about all the things that I want that I don't have instead of thinking about all the things that I have, I was like an animal. But God is gracious, amen? And, and listen to this, because this, this section is a promise to you, family. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. What a tender thing for, for God to hold our right hand. To hold us up. You know, I love, I love the season of life when my kids were little and, and, and I would hold their hands. I still hold my daughter's hand. But like you could just, we'd be walking and there'd be an area that they'd have to jump over and you just kind of whoop and put them back down. And they had, and, 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 and there were these moments where, where, you know, it was the road or there was some cool thing that they wanted or there was something that, that drew them away. But you know what? My hand held them and they stayed by my side. And the word says, you hold my hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. See, he's, he's casting vision for himself and I hope for us to see that whatever the, the, the disconnect you see in the world, there is going to be a day when we will see the glory of God. And it is easy, family, to forget that. This makes it so easy to forget that. Your TV shows make it so easy to forget that. All the things that we fill our souls with to try and kind of numb ourselves to the reality of the wickedness in the world, right? Instead of, if, instead of pressing in and saying, God, I want to see your glory, we, we say to ourselves, I just don't want to feel the pain that I feel. And God invites us to feel the pain, but to remember the future. He says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Right? He was talking about his desires a moment ago. You know, I really want this stuff. I want the house. I want the car. I want the grass. I want the friends. I want the family. I want the wife. I want all these things. But he's saying, you know what? There's nothing I desire but you. Because there's nothing for which I was built ultimately but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my part and my portion forever. Family, your, your flesh will fail you. Right? Young people, believe it or not, that's going to happen. You, you'll wake up one day and, and you'll have a pain. And apart from the healing of God, that's now your, your permanent friend until, until glory. 
Your, your, your friends may fail you. Your, your success will fail you. Your car will certainly fail you because of Northern Virginia and cars. Um, but all the things that we put our hope in will fail us. But what does, he, what does he say? But God is the strength of my heart. And that word there, strength, it's like rock. So if you can imagine your heart being established on a rock and it's not movable because it's on the rock. Jesus talks about it. Is your life built on the rock or built on the sand so that when the wind comes and the rain comes and, and, and the wind blows, do, does your, your house stand? Does your heart stand? Or is it, is it blown away? God is the strength of my heart. And not only that, he is my portion forever. He's my inheritance forever. I, I, haven't, been even be, I haven't even begun to, to scratch the surface of what it means that God is my inheritance Right? We think, oh man, you know, I don't want someone to die in my life, but I'd love to get a great inheritance. But God, the greatest, the, 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 the most valuable existing entity in all of everything. Like there's, there's no words for us to kind of get a taste of it almost. But I, I, I think it, it might be something like, you know, I, where I live, there's a, there's a place called Bear's Den in Berryville, I think it is. It's a cool little overlook. You, you go up the hill, you turn right. If you're coming my way, if you're coming from you guys, you turn left. You go up this hill, and there's like a park. You park where there's a tree, and there are bears carved in the tree. And then you walk through some rocks, and then you get to some more rocks, and then you tell your kids not to climb too far on the rocks because they're scaring you. But then you look out and you see the Shenandoah Valley. And then you're like, this is amazing. But that God is our portion is just a tiny bit like saying, this is mine. This, all this amazing things, all that I see and the beauty of it, the, the impact of it on my heart, that is mine. It is for me to enjoy forever. Right? Take the, the most wonderful thing that you've ever tasted in your, you know, your whole life. Probably it was Tres Leches cake, if you're anything like me. And, and you put it in your mouth, and, and, and God has given you taste buds. He could have not given you taste buds. We could have just kind of you know, taken in our, our needs by osmosis. But no, he gave me a tongue, and I, I celebrate that every day. And, and, I, and I ate that, and, and I had this experience of, man, that's really good. And take that to the, to the nth power. And that's, that's the experience of joy and satisfaction and fullness that God wants to offer us in him. He is our portion forever. And he closes out and he says, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. It is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Family, it's good to be near to God. And sometimes you just need to draw near. If you're in a place, as I close, if you're in a place where you're looking around and, and there's, there's wickedness all around, sometimes we want to we hold God off at, at, at arm's length. But, but I want to encourage you, as James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What does that look like? That looks like praying to God. Right? Pray through this psalm. 
You can pray through the psalm. God, begin to speak the psalm, and then as you have specific utterances of things that, that are specifically weighing you down, you begin to lay those things out before God and being honest with him instead of just saying, my life is really hard, but I'm not going to talk to God because I don't know how to do it, and I'm just going to feel terrible now by myself. No, he invites you to bring that stuff to you and then to have that turn where you remember, you know what, God is just. Pastor Eddie said that God is just, and I see that in the gospel. God, I know that you're just. I'm going to believe that you're just. I'm going to believe that even right now, even though I'm feeling really worn down and oppressed by the wickedness around me, I'm going to believe that you're just. I'm going to look forward to the future. I'm going to hope in what you've got for me. I'm going to believe this word more than I believe the lies of the enemy, more than I believe the testimony of my circumstances. Right? There's a difference between saying things are hard and things are impossible. Right? Things are hard is just a factual observation. Things are impossible is a faith statement. God invites you to be honest with your observations, but he asks you to approach it with a, a heavenly faith statement. What do you do when wickedness prospers? You believe God more than you believe your own narratives. You trust that God is good. You, you get yourself right with God. You know, if, if you're in the place that you're in because of the mistakes or the sin that, that got you there, you, you repent of that stuff. You go to the God who forgives. You go to the God who, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us in our place, defeating Satan's sin and offering eternal life to anyone who would trust and follow him. And then you hope in God, the final judge and our final reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us a taste? Would you give us a taste of what it means that you are our portion? I think that for so many of us, some of this is just so hard because we don't, we don't have a sense of your goodness. And we know, because the Bible says that you're good, but God, would you warm our hearts? Would you remind us by your spirit that, that you're good? If you're in this room and you feel just dry and weary and you don't have a sense of the goodness of God, can you just raise your hands? I want to pray and I want to beg God to give you a sense of his goodness. Would you step out in faith right now and just put your hand up, keep it up for a moment. And I want to believe that God's going to meet you supernaturally right now through his word ministered to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would minister to every person in this room whose hand is raised, that you would, you would speak to their heart. God, if they've trusted in you, in you, I pray that you would speak the love of the Father to them, that, that love that says, I chose you before you were even born. I chose you not because of the good things that you can offer me, but because I love you. I've adopted you, I've justified you, I'm sanctifying you, I will glorify you, and I'll bring you, and I will give you a holy hug when we're in heaven. God, would you pour that love out on those people? And for those who haven't trusted in you, God, I pray that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ. They would stop trusting themselves, and they would trust you. They would give their lives to you. They would begin to say, God, what do you want me to do with this thing? God, would you minister would you minister hope to us? Real hope, not just tomorrow hope, not just next Thursday hope, not just hope that our circumstances will get better, but hope that we're gonna see our Savior and that's gonna make everything okay. That whatever we experience now, my heart may fail me, my family may fail me, 
My friends may fail me. My job may fail me. My children may fail me. But God, you are the strength of my heart. You uphold my heart. And you are my portion. God, I pray that you would give that upholding grace to the people whose hands are raised or those who who are afraid to raise their hands. God, uphold your people. And God, I thank you that that is your desire, that you will answer that prayer. We pray this all in the name of our mighty Lord Jesus. Amen. Love you, family.